0: All right. Welcome to episode number 135 of Better Yet Podcast. I'm Tim Crisp, your host. Better yet, this is a long-form interview podcast featuring musicians talking about influence, talking about writing, and talking about being around. Those drums sound good, don't they? How about the guitars? Pristine! He's here. The name on the marquee, Steve Albini is on the show this week. My word, an interview that was months in the making. Such excitement for us to dive into, because my guy isn't just here this week, but your guy, Tim, brought his A-game bubbles. Holy cow, what a show in store. Uh, Trying to keep it positive over here. Uh, It's just uh, another one. Devastating, devastating weekend. The shootings in El Paso, Dayton, violence in Chicago. It's scary out there, always. And the regularity of it and the bullshit we get fed every time, it's infuriating. It's sad and it's consuming. Hoping this can be a reprieve. It's not escapism, but it's a break, a chance to take in something good for a moment, and celebrate a thing or two, all right? We got Steve Albini here. We've also got All of God's Money, our compilation and tribute to Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, over on our Bandcamp page, ready at podcast.bandcamp.com. We covered the entire record. On behalf of AIDS Foundation of Chicago, who's we? I'm talking Laura Stevenson, Meat Wave, Rap Boys, Adult Mom, and more. Keep those downloads coming in so we can continue to send money over to a wonderful cause. That's over at betteryetpodcast.bandcamp.com. We've got, I'm not going to get too far into it here, but on a bit of a uh, career path change is happening in my life right now. I am available for your podcast production needs. BetterYetPodcast podcast at gmail.com advertising needs BetterYetPodcast podcast at gmail.com. All right. We've got a lot to get to this week and we've got a lot going on over on Patreon as well. Patreon. That's another way that you can help support me and the show by pledging a monthly amount over at patreon.com slash podcast. Your pledge comes in monthly in exchange for bonus audio content of which you There has been plenty, playlists, original programming, or when I feel so inclined, as I did with this interview here, just threw it up early. Steve also stayed to talk after the interview, took some questions that we've got up exclusively for the Patreon. If you ever wanted to know what the guitar effect on Heart Shaped Box is, you can find the answer over at patreon.com. Slash better yet podcast, postcards, coffee, plenty more. All right. My guest this week, Steve Albini. You might remember him from such bands as Big Black or Shellac or his Omnipresence and Michael Azarod's Our Band Could Be Your Life. Maybe he talks shit on your favorite band like he did on mine. But if you've listened to a record in the past 30 years, it's a good chance that Albini had a hand in It his career as an audio engineer a key distinction: They're not a producer. His career as an audio engineer stretches back to the mid '80s. His bona fides include Jawbreaker, Superchunk, Neurosis, Jesus Lizard, The Pixies, Jason Molina, The Wedding Present, Slint, PJ Harvey, Nirvana's In Utero. Over a thousand credited and uncredited appearances add to the list. Our friends Chris Sutter and Meatwave and Megan O'Neill. Of super unison Albini's approach to engineering has always been centered around capturing the band as they sound and documenting it as opposed to crafting something perfect out of the songs and players which might not sound controversial but tell that to david geffen steve has always been an outspoken critic in the punk community End of the record industry, and he's also walked the walk not only in the way that he approaches recording, but he's always worked at a flat rate, doesn't take a percentage on record sales, and has worked with a set of ethics that's held steady since he started writing for zines and playing in big black. That's where I started, and that's what led me through putting this interview together. It would be impossible to cover everything so I focused in on where that set of ethics comes from, how his approach to recording came together, and what drives him to work the way that he does. There are so many records and there are also a lot of arcs so I followed those. I'm so proud of what we were able to pack into this conversation so let's get to it. This is me and Steve Albini.
1: make some very tenuous but legitimate connection of the dots between this record and another record by saying, oh, and this record was also worked on by this guy who has all these other associations. So I understand why people do it. It's just, it does seem, I mean, lazy is the wrong word for it. It just seems like the like the the simplest um, bit of analytics that somebody could do.
0: You can get down to that one point And then you can go from there. You don't have to come up with the starting point for talking about this record. Yeah,
1: like more significantly, like if you were to rank all of the factors that make a record good, bad, or indifferent, like who was the engineer on the session is probably very, very low on the scale of all the qualitative elements of what makes a record good. And if you think of records the way I do as being sort of artifacts of the long arc of a of a career, uh, you know, like the records are just, you know, moments or, you know, souvenirs of that whole arc, if you think of it that way, then in the span of the whole career of the musician or whatever, then that one detail about that one record becomes sort of vanishingly insignificant.
0: Right. Right. It does seem a little antithetical too to the way that you operate too, where you want as little credit as possible for it. So the fact that something comes out and the first thing that anybody talks about is the guy who engineered the sessions is kinda like Yeah, we're all missing the point here.
1: I'm not I'm not that fussy about it like there was a period in the 90s when there were <clears throat> there was a sort of a a, a professional publicist publi, pub, publicist and publicity class there like, there was a, there were there were offices of publicity that right. where people had either independent publicists or there were record labels that had publicity departments and where there was an active effort to promote everything through every channel that was open. And um, that was a very aggressive marketing effort that was underway. Uh, and that all of that stuff felt imposed to me. Like, if you asked a band, like, how would you like to build your fan base... The band would say we would like our fan base to discover our music, like it, and then like us as a result. Right. Right. That's just yeah. that's just the way everybody perceives their music, right? But the professional class of publicists wanted people to be sort of tricked, or co- co- or coerced into discovering music, and then like it accidentally. You know, right. like it's like we just want you to buy this record, and then if you like it, that's great. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and so I've, I, I, that's part of my distaste for marketing in general um, comes out of that exposure to things being aggressively marketed and promoted to me, and it just made my skin crawl. I just really, you know, and I didn't want to be. As much as that stuff irritates me, I presume that it irritates other people, mm-hmm. and I did not want to be a vector of that practice. You know.
0: well I find it I find it interesting to think about it in context of when you're talking about when you have a major industry behind all of this mm-hmm. and then you fast forward to now where yeah where the industry
1: has collapsed and everybody is sort of running mom and pop shops for everything right you know? but yeah.
0: it's almost like the the places like that were underground and independent then places like matador or 4id have kind of gone into that mode almost in like a historical like this is the way we talk about our bands we want to kind of follow in the in the footsteps of maybe not the 90s in general but how things were done in the 90s
1: matador is kind of a special case um i know the principals that ran that ran and run matador and i know that they are honorable people but they have they took full advantage of the sort of inflation of the of the um, independent and alternative music scene in the '90s, where they basically never had to use their own money mm-hmm. to, to promote their bands or to grow their business. You know, like they they had a, a a a deal with Atlantic, as I recall, and they were using Atlantic money for a while. They had a, then. Um, I want to say capital bought 50% stake for like tens of millions of dollars, you know? So like they were not one of these um, street level independent record labels, like all the labels in Chicago, for example, like drag city, like thrill jockey, like cranky, like touch and go, like, you know, skin graft and invisible, like the, like all the, all the record labels, the independent underground record labels in Chicago, like were entrepreneurial, independent businesses where their relationships with the bands were the critical element and they, you know, they weren't using outside capital. They weren't using outside uh, mechanisms, basically. They were, they were doing it uh, out of their garages in a sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a contrast between that and the sort of professional tier labels that sometimes had some crossover in artists, labels like subpop and matador. Sure. Um, and um, in an earlier iteration you had things like the Dutch East India Trading Company that had a number of sub labels like Homestead and um, I can't remember what the other labels right, were. But right. Or even so- like
0: the the Warner Brothers like they have Sire, which is just like specifically for, you know, bands like the Ramones or yeah. the replacements eventually.
1: But even those were – yeah, those are those are either imprints of another bigger label or they were semi-autonomous labels that were functioning with a bankroll that was much larger than their business probably warranted, right? And that was due to the aggressive sort of uh, amoeba-like enveloping of music scenes that the major labels were actively engaged in, uh-huh. like – you know there was a there was an um, an underground heavy metal scene where there were a bunch of independent uh, metal labels and a bunch of bands that were putting out their own small imprint record labels and cassettes and tape trading and fanzines and all that was a like a burbling underground that was like a, a viable underground scene, and then as soon as some of those bands started to get any notoriety they were just sort of immediately like like. Bought up by bigger record labels. And in the heavy metal scene, that was always seen as a step up. Like that was always seen as a, that's a much more mercantile, much more mercenary kind of scene than right. the punk underground and the experimental music underground.
0: Yeah. Metal, you don't have to justify why you did this thing no. to sell
1: more records. Yeah. It's all, I mean, it's all, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty apparent from the kinds of people that make that music and the kinds of audiences that they, uh, catered to and the kinds of things that they did on a professional scale that you know they aspired to being big Uh and you did that by moving into the mainstream that was less obvious in the underground and on the independent scene where you had bands that were ostensibly making music for its own sake where you had people that were ostensibly being true to a set of ideals that inspired their audience to like them in the first place you know and So that's why the the sort of the gray area between the independent labels, the truly independent labels that operated as entrepreneurial small businesses, and then these sort of imprint labels that, uh, and some of which started out as these small entrepreneurial record labels and then got, you know, enveloped by the major label mechanism. That was a pretty disheartening period. Yeah. Yeah. it seemed
0: like it was particularly disheartening
1: for you. Well, what what inspired me about punk rock when I first encountered it was that you had all of these fucking freaks and weirdos and just like borderline people, like marginal people that couldn't function in straight society. And they had chopped out a little enclave where they could function uh-huh. without having to cater to the squares and the norms and the straights. like you could have like these extremely flamboyant people living their genuine selves without having, without concerning themselves at all about propriety, right? Mm-hmm. So that was what was inspired me, me, That, that was the stuff that, that turned me on and made me think, that I want to live in this my whole life. Yeah, you know? sure. And then when that started being co-opted into the mainstream and all of the rough edges were being polished off, I started to realize that even people that looked and sounded and talked like me could have, were for sale to a degree, mm-hmm. and that that was a depressing realization. Now, I mean, I've rationalized an awful lot of that behavior among my friends, um, but it always and still feels like a, a bit of like a letdown when I realize. That we had so much that functioned autonomously and independent of the sort of square power structures that was just abdicated for you know that was just surrendered yeah uh, at the at the first uh, you know at the first nibble of anybody who wanted to be a genuine profiteer I'll, you know just a surprising number of my peers and cohort just decided to go for it right you know? right. And that was a depressing, uh, that was a depressing era, you know.
0: Yeah. Let's go, let's go back a little bit. Um, where
1: did you grow up? You were in Montana. I grew up in right? Montana. I my, I moved around a lot when I was a little kid, but I did m- most of my formative experiences were in Montana from the, you know, I I landed there when I was like eight or nine and then huh. I stayed there through high school and then I left from there to go to college at, at Northwestern and, and that's when I came to Chicago in, in 1980. what did your folks do? My father was a research scientist. Um, he, at the time, we, when we moved to Montana, he was doing research into the science of forest fires, doing computer modeling of forest forest fires. Uh-huh. Um, it was groundbreaking work. Um, it was really some of the very first stuff like that that was being done using large-scale computer modeling for very complex problems like that. Um what then, did,
0: did he see a, is he a doctor? What's what's his background going into something like that?
1: He worked in the aerospace industry before that. He has several degrees. He has a Ph.D. in um, aerodynamics, and he has a had a master's in philosophy, I think. And then he had a, a I think he might actually be a doctor of mathematics as well. Wow! When, he was one of the very in the late fifties, early sixties. Um, computer science wasn't its own. Um, wasn't its own discipline, so it was always in the math department. Right. Uh, instead of the applications for computers, they were concerned primarily with the function of computers at that point. So it was yeah. all considered mathematics, and he was one of the very earliest people to program in the language Fortran, which was the the earliest complex computer language. And uh, so, in in the late fifties and early sixties, he was working um, with computers to do some of the first predictive models of aerodynamic behavior for wow. companies like the Hughes Aircraft Corporation and very general dynamics and,
0: and he's got a philosophy this sounds like pretty intense intellect to grow up with
1: he's the, easily the smartest person I've ever met wow yeah easily Um, he and that was pretty common uh, opinion among people who knew him especially among his work peers like the people that worked with him yeah um, like his reputation was that he always wanted the hardest problem, you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I that's a gene I did not inherit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like there's a little bit of like the uh the
0: math and the mechanics that probably go into what you're doing now when you got into audio engineering and stuff like that, were you finding yourself sort of just diving into the the mechanics of
1: the audio – being an, an, a recording engineer is a byproduct of me having gotten into punk rock and then being right. in a band. Uh, sure. So those were the, the motivating factors. I wanted to be in a band. My band wanted to make recordings. Somebody needed to do that. I, I had a minor technical bent, so I decided that I would learn how to do that. Right. I don't have a natural affinity for mathematics. I'm, I have a I, – I can do, um, you know – Rel- I can do relatively simple arithmetic in my head. You yeah, know, that's that's not a big, not a not a trick really. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh But and I I don't I'm I don't qualify on a on a academic level as an engineer. I'm sure. Not, I don't. I'm not. But is a,
0: there is there you think there's an aspect maybe of like getting into it and just being like oh, this is. Making sense to me and maybe, like, motivating, I, I think, like, yeah, after I mean, you I, get going a little bit.
1: Yeah. All of the problems associated with audio uh, are extremely logical problems in the analog domain. Uh, any problem that you have will ultimately have a simple solution. Mm-hmm. You just need to find that simple solution. Sure. It, it's, it's startling. When you realize that uh, you know people who've been raised in a computer paradigm where so many of the problems are hidden and baffling because they're a function of misbehaving software which you can't see operating, right? Right, and you don't that know the it, language. and You need not There's know. just a there's a there's a a presumption that problems are kind of intractable and or unknowable, right? And I came into audio engineering at the end of the analog era where everything was still sort of rooted in electromechanical principles where, you know, you you trace the wire and see where the wire is broken. Right. You know, sure. Basically. Sure. Uh, and but that that paradigm doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, it does exist on a uh, on the front end of audio systems, but inside a computer, nobody has any fucking idea what's going on yeah. on any of in any of that stuff. There's a drop down menu, and it says, you know, like, what value of shadow enhancement do you want on uh-huh. your, you know, or like, <laughs> how many, you know, what what, what have,
0: pixels are you looking for? Exactly,
1: yeah. like, and there's no there's no intuitive grasp of any of that. You have to learn. The protocols and the language and the and the and the the hieroglyphics for every single system that you're working on. Whereas in the analog domain, everything is very straightforward. It's all laid out right in front of you. You can follow the signal chain. You can check every contact. You can you know there's a there's there's a logic to it which suits my personality. Like I like to be able to solve the problems concretely. Yeah. And then once they're solved, I don't have to fucking think about them again. You know. <laughs> So was there – how does punk rock come
0: to Montana? Or were you were you musically inclined before
1: that and then – I had no interest, no specific interest in music. I had, you know, like a glancing exposure to music like everybody does just through my – you know, like my brother had a hard rock record collection. And sure. so like I had heard The Who and Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and that sort of stuff. But they like – they didn't register with me. Um, uh, And then – I started picking up um, clues about punk rock in magazines like Rolling Stone, which at the time were still covering a pretty wide spectrum of music, not just like sort of mainstream pop music. And and then I got introduced to the Ramones. A friend of mine had a tape of the first Ramones album, and that that record literally changed my life. Just hearing Mm -hmm. that record gave me a perspective on music and on life that I would not have had otherwise and then I started wanting to make music myself and my me and my peer group we decided to start a band and we started a band and it was of course a disaster but you know uh-huh. it was it was, was it totally worth just ducky was the name of the band oh, okay. totally worthwhile experience yeah um you know just to, just getting your feet wet in any way and it was just really w- was I recommend it even if you never want to pursue music I recommend trying to put a band together you know, yeah just because it's as a social exercise social experiment it's pretty great
0: so when you talk about i guess you refer to punk as being for freaks by freaks when yeah. you find it when you're in high school i guess what like are you there's a the uh the feeling of of mutual understanding between i mean you look at the ramones mm. they're freaks yeah exactly and,
1: yeah. I mean, they're they're a perfect encapsulation of what what I thought the punk rock scene could do. You had, uh, you know, uh, like a, a hyperactive kid, D.D., who's like, you know, manic, mm-hmm. you know, also degenerate junkie, probably couldn't keep his life together on any real level. But, Definitely not. But in that band, he was amazing, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Johnny Ramone, obvious maniac, you know, like... Mm. Like had a utterly unique way of playing guitar and absolutely rigid and fixed in his ideas. they just happened to be very good ideas, yeah, you know? yeah, and then uh Joey, who was just this sort of lost romantic figure, you know, like everybody knew right. somebody like that who was uh-huh. you know like. You know, just wanted so to be a singer. Yeah, right. Couldn't really sing, didn't really matter, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Just all of that, all that stuff, everything about that, that band was really inspirational to me. Like, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, like, you could live your whole life that way.
0: Absolutely. You know? So, so when you came to Chicago uh, to go to Northwestern, did you come? You went, you went for journalism, right? Yeah. Would, did you come for that program, or was that program an excuse for you to come to a place like Chicago?
1: I, I, didn't ever anticipate having a life in music as a career.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so I wanted a saleable skill and I liked writing and I liked the idea of journalism. Like my, I had a kind of an idealized notion of what journalism was. And so I, I wanted to.
0: <laughs> I majored in English too. So yeah, yeah. so did I.
1: <laughs> so uh, yeah, and, and Northwestern had a, a respected journalism program. Yeah. That, you know, so there were three schools that were in contention uh, Columbia, New York, Columbia, Missouri and Northwestern University all three of those were considered very good journalism schools Uh, and the only reason I knew that is because I went to the local newspaper and I asked a couple of editors there what are the good journalism schools Yeah, sure. that's what they all said
0: So Uh, so do you think like because you you come in and you start doing bands pretty quickly Mm -hmm. you also start writing quickly is I'm sure that the the journalism is influencing the fact that you... Are you thinking about, like, you want to catalog or you want to
1: express your opinion about things? Obviously, you express your opinion. I never... Loudly. Yeah, I never equated fanzine writing with journalism. Right. Like, I never... Th- I thought of... I always thought of fanzine writing as, a, as an extension of the arguments that you would get into in bars about bands, you know? Like, you would try to turn your friends on to cool stuff and you would, um, you know you would run down the people that you thought were being out of line. That, like, that's right. what you did in, in conversation, and the, the fanzines were just an extension of that conversation in my mind.
0: You did I, the, the latter part very loudly, though, and I, I think that that's...
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand the perspective that you're, that you're trying to be part, that everyone is, is a part of a scene, mm-hmm. and that you want that scene to do well. And so there, I understand the sort of cheerleader aspect of some fanzine writing, where like they like Maximum Rock and Roll, for example, which was the sort of the pinnacle of the fanzine world at the time, uh, had a policy that they wouldn't print negative reviews; they would only print reviews that were explanatory or descriptive of music. But if but it, they, they wouldn't print reviews that were judgmental about records. On the other end of the spectrum, you had fanzines like. Uh, Disaster and um, conflict and forced exposure, who were unrelentingly critical of the of bad music right. and unrelentingly exuberant about good music and, and good bands, and I and that was seemed to me to be a much more useful use of the 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 medium that you could. Distinguish between something being bad and something being good seemed like a plus to me. That didn't seem like a drawback. That didn't, that seemed like a feature, not a bug.
0: Right, right. So, when you're, I, I, what I find interesting about that writing for places like Force Exposure and Matter is that you really lay out your beliefs about punk and honesty and integrity, and those all continue to kind of guide your career path. And it's, it's, it's wild to me that this all starts when you're in your early twenties.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, I'm certain I haven't, I haven't revisited much of that stuff that I've written, that I wrote back then. My suspicion is that I would, that I would find issue with a lot of it now because I'm, I know more. Right. And I'm, sure. And I'm, you know, I'm more tempered now. And I think I, <laughs> as is true with most people, I thought I knew it all um, when I, you know, when I knew very little. And so I'm, I'm certain I would be, I was more judgmental and more caustic than necessary, although some certain things have remained awful. Yeah.
3: So <laughs> I like just, right. for, for
1: example, like I, I, I just, I have a Twitter account. I, my Twitter account is private so that I don't get my I, I just want to be able to talk shit about people and not get written up and pitchfork right so, right uh can i follow you will you accept no. that no, uh that's cool basically i have there's like nine people that follow they're like uh-huh. friend, people that i know that are friends of mine it's like an extended i'm gonna ask you thing. again at the end of this interview because i yeah. think we're getting there okay <laughs> um anyway uh somehow twitter has decided that it, that it should show me posts about uh professional wrestling yeah which uh, is baffling to me i have always hated professional wrestling i've never expressed an opinion about wrestling oh other you than, just
0: you just haven't seen the right wrestling
1: well you came to the right place uh, i'm fine without i'm all fine right. being remaining unenlightened
0: you see john cena up on the wall there it, all right anyway okay. i'm, I'm uh, distracted so
1: the, apparently there's some weird progressive politics um pro wrestling nexus that I was unaware of, and yeah. somehow, yeah. somehow, i you know, like, um, there's a tendril of that that's attached itself to me somehow. I don't, I don't get it, but, the, oh, uncle, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just today, I saw like three or four posts uh, about Jane's addiction, which I don't know if there's maybe there's some significant anniversary coming up or whatever but Jane's addiction was awful then they're awful now there's no reason for me to revisit my opinion of Jane's addiction how uh-huh. how the fuck did twitter decide that i needed to hear more about jane's addiction like there's some some weird calculus in play here they make
0: when you, you know, don't do when you don't do enough on there when you don't have enough people that you're following or interacting with they make the conclusions for you so they think okay this guy likes music well it's the 30th no other anniversary music. there's no other
1: music in the world <laughs> than Jane's addiction yeah no i mean that's just that's an example of something i would have hated then right and but not for reasons that I couldn't articulate but because they were awful uh-huh. and I still hate them because they have remained awful nothing in the intervening 30 years has made them less awful
0: I agree with you there
1: <laughs> um but
0: I do think you know what you harp upon, during that time is the aspects of integrity and honesty. And as we were talking about earlier with major labels coming in and you Mm -hmm. didn't really go that route, you've also sort of been steadfast in this idea that I am not a producer. I'm an engineer. Mm -hmm. I don't take production cuts. I don't believe in that. Those sort of moral things that have, have continued to guide you. I just don't find too many people, um, holding an opinion for as long as they have and that not being a negative thing. So I'm wondering well, what I, it is with yours.
1: Well, I I disagree. I think there are an awful lot of people who think like I do about all of these things. It's just that mo- most of them don't happen to be professionals. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there is a a very strong incentive when you get involved in the production of records Uh, There's a very strong financial incentive for you to take every avenue of income that you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you take royalties on your bigger records, the argument is you take royalties on the big records and that allows you to do the small records that don't pay as well, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't... I don't buy that, and, and also I think the taking of the the royalties in the first place is unethical. So, like, I'm not going to do a small unethical thing where somebody can afford it so that I have a cushion and I can then indulge other people. I just indulge everybody, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I like my job, so I do it all the time. And if you do, even if you're not making that much on a per-record basis, if you make a shit million records, then you can, you know, you can chop out a living and I, I'm fine chopping out a living. I don't need to be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable as a working stiff. I like my job. I like doing it every day. Nothing about that seems like a drawback to me. And that's, you know, I'm sure that you you could walk down this block and find a hundred dudes that feel exactly the same way. Yeah, my job is fine. It, I earn enough at it. I'm, I don't have crazy ambitions to get, you know, beyond that or be the CEO of my company. Sure. I'm happy, yeah. you know, doing my job. And I, th- I think that's perfectly reasonable perspective. It's, it's just unusual because I have at certain junctures had the option of, you know, making a shit ton of money off of one record or another. Right. You know.
0: Um, when you're doing Big Black, you make atomizer and then also bulldozer and racer x mm-hmm. with ian Burgess and then you also do uh part of songs about fucking with john Loder, mm-hmm. uh two people that you cite as being hugely influential yeah. on your engineering um can we talk about those two specifically like what was yeah. it well
1: okay bearing in mind that in the late 70s early 80s recording equipment and recording opportunities were not ubiquitous. Like, if you were a band and you wanted to do a recording of your band, it was a real fucking process. You either had to, you know, find a studio, convince the studio to let you do a session there, scrape the money together, go in there. You know, you're in this alien environment. You're with this person that doesn't get your music, who's got probably got a, a beard and a ponytail, uh-huh. you know, and, like, there's no, you know, like there's no rapport you're in this alien environment you, you you know you're paying through the nose what what is likely money that you can't afford to spend and then you're rolling the dice like maybe this rec- recording will represent us and maybe it won't mm-hmm. you know and at that time they developed a kind of um peer group with the bands in every locale where there was an active scene there were one or two guys who uh, at, who were sympathetic to the bands uh, as engineers and could take them into the studio and do um, recordings with them that were respectful, that respected whatever the eccentricities of the band were, that didn't try to, like, you know, didn't try to get rid of what was innately cool about those bands. Right. Ian Burgess was that guy in Chicago. Like, he was a friend of all of the bands in the scene. There's another guy in in Chicago named Tim Powell who did location recording. Oh, okay. So, like, Tim Powell would bring his gear to your band practice room and set up his gear and do a demo recording of your band. And that's how a lot of the early bands got their recordings made bands like The Effigies and Naked Ray Gun. And there, there's, a, there's a brilliant live album that was done in the closing days of the Oz Club, the punk club Oz, mm. called Busted at Oz. And that recording was done by Tim Powell okay. at the club. With, part of it was done with the doors barricaded because the police were trying to shut down the gig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like in every scene, in every town, there was a guy or a couple of guys who made themselves available to the punk bands. And would go out of their way to do sympathetic, flattering recordings of those bands, right? So, and yeah, Ian's not going to
0: be like, clean up the tone, like your guitar's too distorted. Exactly. Like, he,
1: he, if he, if a band wanted to, had some perversion that they wanted to capture, he was into the idea of capturing that perversion, right? Yeah. So, and if you go to if you go to any city in America there would be a guy like that in Minneapolis there was a guy named Brian Paulson who was you know a friend of the bands he played in the band Man Size Action he had a little portable recording rig that he would bring and record bands he worked at a warehouse for the a record distributor and at night he would use the warehouse as a recording space and record bands in, in this warehouse use the acoustics of this uh, warehouse as his recording studio yeah um in the Milwaukee-Madison area, there was Butch Vig, who ran Smart Studios and sure. eventually became a famous record producer. But yeah. but he started out by being another guy in a band who was sympathetic to guys in the bands. Mm-hmm. You know? And so he did all of these incredible records with bands like The Appliances and Killdozer and DeKreutzen and uh, Laughing Hyenas. and like He did all these fantastic-sounding punk records, which really are the reason that he ended up being contacted and being used by... The grunge bands that eventually started to become famous and built him a really big reputation. Right,
0: your your predecessor with Nirvana. I didn't yeah. know he recorded Die Kreuzen. That's cool.
1: Yeah. Um, so d- like right, Ian Ian was that guy in Chicago, and uh, John Loder was very much that guy in London. He yeah. built a studio. Uh, he was an associate of the band Crass. He had gone to college with some of the members of Crass. Uh, he was actually in an early experimental group with the members of Crass called Exit. They were they were like a, a performance art experimental group um yeah that was like early 70s yeah that would have been early mid 70s and then when he opened uh southern studios crass were kind of the linchpin band of that scene and they were funneling all of their bands through there he also did he and his studio also did a lot of the early small wonder and 4ad um and beggar's banquet like all the early independent scene um Cherry Red, I think, as well. A lot of those bands, a lot of those small independent labels, were doing their recordings at John's studio because he made himself available, because he was sympathetic, because the results were good, and he didn't, you know, he didn't interfere with the aesthetics of the bands. And so those guys were inspirations to me as an engineer, seeing them work. seeing the results that they got, like the the records that Ian Burgess made for the bands that he worked with in Chicago That's are so so they're fantastic. Yeah. Those Naked Reagan records are incredible. The Digits mm-hmm. records are incredible. Just, yeah. I mean, simple, straightforward, sympathetic, uh, and respectful, you know. And the same is true of the records that John Loder made. Like, the records that he made, those crass records, crass label records, they're blistering records. Just, you know, just un- unrelenting records. And super clear super crisp sound you know I just respect both those guys not not so much on a technical level but on uh but definitely on a technical level in some respects but mainly because their perspective was that the band's got it right yeah the band walks in the door with their shit together and they have it right and my job is to put that on tape and then let other people hear it and see how great this band is like that and that that attitude was at odds with the sort of training and perception of professional recording at the time, which was that there were archetypes. Like there were, this is the way a bass drum is supposed to sound. This is the way, you know, there is a, there is a procedure for recording a guitar and this is it, you know, bass guitar is always done this way. Um, You know, like all, all of those sort of categorical things were thrown out the window um, by those guys because they accepted that when the band Brings their music in to record. The band is has their 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 aesthetics and their sound together, and they're not looking for somebody to reinvent them. They just want somebody to make a recording of
0: it. It's wild listening to I my Crass discography. It's it's a little jumbled, but there's you know the demos that they. Did with John their first session with them, and they'd done stuff before that, and you just get to the demos on John shit, and it's just like, oh, like fuck, this is yeah.
1: They they, they solved the riddle very early, right?
0: So um, so you built the home studio in
1: in eighty six, right? Yeah, eighty. I bought the house in eighty six with the intention of building a studio in it, and then uh, the the first sessions that we did there were the big black sessions for the he's a horse single and the song's about fucking album. Um, you
0: know, I think that l- looking at John and, and looking at, you know, those concepts of, of doing, doing justice to the band and doing it efficiently. So, and looking at kind of the arcs that you've gone through in your career. And you're at this point where you effectively record Joanna Newsom in the same way that you just recorded that sun record. It's mm-hmm. the best, sounding record that they've ever done Hmm. um i i'm i guess i'm i'm wondering are you always refining is there is there part of you that's just like i need to i need to get there i need to be able to do this part of the job well
1: well there after you've made a few dozen records you start to think you've got everything figured out and you know uh and then you you every now and again you stumble on something like there's a problem that you haven't encountered before. And then you realize, well, there's a whole lot of stuff that you don't know. And then, so there's, you go through these kind of stair steps of like thinking, thinking you have your shit together and then being humbled by some problem that's, you know, that, that stops the session and makes, you know, disappoints everyone in the room. And so, uh, yeah, like when I first started, Working, first started recording, I, I didn't really know what I was doing, so everything was an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started to, like, appreciate the results of some of those experiments and think that I had solved those problems. And then I started to develop a vocab- working vocabulary of how to how to do things. And I'm certain I had thought that by the third or fourth studio session I'd done that I had, had everything figured right, out. Sure, right, sure, sure. And then, you know, you're just repeatedly humbled by... Um, your, your, your hubris. And, and then, so a a few years ago, I, I, I was in a a period where I was feeling kind of jaded about my job. Um, The, the sessions that were surprising to me were kind of few and far between. Uh, It seemed like I was doing a lot of rote repetition sessions where like the band showed up And as soon as I opened the door and looked at him, I knew what kind of music I was going to be dealing with. And then uh, from the first note that they played, there were no surprises from there on out. Like there were a few sessions, there were were a few months in a row of that kind of thing. And that was, I was feeling slightly jaded. And I read this interview with uh, Bob Weston, who is a good friend of mine and plays in the band I'm in. Yeah. And runs a really great mastering studio called Chicago Recording Service. but um, I read this interview with him where he said that as a little exercise he tries to set one thing up on every session that he's never done before. He tries to do one thing that he's never done before Mm. on every single session. I thought, man, that's fucking brilliant. That's really smart. Just one little manageable exercise, one little manageable experiment on every session. No matter how Routine, the rest of it is, there'll be this one thing that you know that you didn't know before. It might be something trivial like a choice of a microphone uh-huh. or some specific about the positioning of a microphone or, you know, like the, the way certain elements are balanced into a composite sound. Whatever it is, there is something that you can come up with where you can give yourself an opportunity to learn on every single session. It can be the most mundane, most rote, most typical session, and you can still create an opportunity to learn, right? So as when I read that, I thought it was brilliant, and I immediately stole it. I immediately adopted that as, uh-huh. a, as a technique. And now on every session that I do, there will be one thing that I've never done before. It could be some minor technical detail about how the machine is biased or, you know, like... Sure. You know, some yeah, signal yeah, yeah, flow yeah. thing. It uh-huh. could be something, but there there will be something different about every some some small thing new and different about every single session I, I I do, and just that one thing has given me a lot of other like a lot of new techniques and a lot of new foundation that I have been able to to build on and use. Um, when you're confronted with something completely new, like Joanna Newsom's music, for example, is extremely dependent on the relationship of her voice and her harp most Mm -hmm. of the time, or when she's playing piano, the relationship of her voice and the piano. So most of the time, she's going to be singing while she's playing, and the harp is a very quiet instrument, and sometimes her singing is quite strident, so you have to... I had to find a technique that allowed me to record her singing and playing where I could do justice to both the harp and the singing. And that was a bit of an iterative process at first, but eventually I got a series of techniques together that allow me to do that. And I have had to do that a couple of times since, and I was glad that I had, had that experience of not knowing what I was doing and having to figure it out.
0: I love that you get that quote from Bob, and how many times have you recorded
1: yeah. Bob playing bass? And, and- <laughs> I, like, we've spent you know literal years of our lives right. together in deep conversation. Like, and that one thing had never come up. But fuck me, that was such a brilliant little insight. I was so glad that I I stole that from him.
0: I love that.
1: It. It's it's interesting that
0: you bring that up too, because one of the things that I've also been looking at is the amount of. Long-standing collaborative relationships that you've had over the past 30 years. And at the beginning, it's, it's like Jesus Lizard, mm-hmm. John Spencer, blues explosion, silkworm. That makes sense in, you know, not only the proximity of where they live, but also they're not too dissimilar from mm-hmm. the music that you make. But the amount of, I guess, like you look at a band like neurosis where they come in, they make times of grace with you and, it just makes so much sense for them to continue coming back to you every time. Like, that relationship, I guess, in particular, is one that stood out to me. What do you think it is about working with Neurosis and what you've done for them because they've experienced such tremendous artistic growth through that time?
1: Well, again, I I don't want to... I don't want to credit myself with very much of that. Uh, I'm very much a facilitator uh, for them. They have, th- their band is complicated in ways that that uh, are unique to them. They don't live in the same city. They have to do a lot of their songwriting by correspondence. Um, uh, they, can only, they, have, they can only get together seasonally to, to practice and play and tour. Um, there are things about that band that, just the functioning of that band, which are unique to them. And um, I think part of it is that they that they have, they know that this one aspect is not going to be additionally a hassle. Like mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> sure, know, sure. Like sure. If they can just carve out the time to do the record, then they can just plug into our calendar and it will, they'll be welcome and we'll have our shit together and all, you know, everything will work and they won't have, you know, it'll be a familiar environment. They'll... You know, like a, a lot of things won't be in doubt at, for a band who already has logistically a shit million things to deal with. They don't want to also have to figure out how to, you know, maneuver into a complicated environment. Our thing is very much a turnkey. Yeah. Like they show up, you, you know, they have their shit together. They know that they can count on on everything working reasonably smoothly we get along on a personal level great i admire them and we're we become friends but i i also don't think that just i don't think that that would sway their decision you know like if they thought Mm -hmm. they could get a better result doing things elsewhere or if they thought it would be easier on their lives to do things elsewhere than they would and i wouldn't hold it against them just because you know it's it's cumbersome for that band to operate, and it's incredible that they've stayed together and so productive and so, in, like they're so expansively creative over such a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Given all of the obstacles that they've had, it's
0: you know? like coming back to you. It's like they know that whatever you're feeding,
1: whatever they're feeding you, it's gonna work. It's like you know, there's a there's a pair of shoes at the foot of the bed. If I don't have to th- go to the closet and pick out one of 30 pairs of shoes this morning, I'll save myself 15 minutes. I can just hop into those shoes and get to work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel like in this, in the this instance, I'm a, i am a just, I'm a pair of loafers, <laughs> you know? Um, l- l- let's, let's
0: circle back. Y- you get a call from Kangos. he's managing the Pixies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has you come out to Boston and meet the band and, the next day you're in the studio Mm -hmm. with him that's that's how it happened yeah um how did how did you end up coming into ken's purview do you do you have any idea
1: um i'm fairly certain that he was encouraged to call me by ivo watts russell from 4ad Uh who was familiar with big black and um i think i think that's probably the long and short of it you know i know that he wasn't that Ken goes and the Pixies weren't were not aware of my band or familiar with me before we met, at right? That, you know, um, and they were the first band that I had re- that I had done a session with who weren't already either friends or friends of friends of mine. Like they were the first people that, that contacted me out of the blue, yeah, to do a session with them.
0: Things kind of changed for you after that, right? I mean, you're uh, you're a you're a guy. All of a sudden, well, in that sense, I
1: have to, I have to say that record did not make a big splash in America. Um, the Pixies record that I worked on, the Surfer Rosa record, was well received in Europe, and they became a, a you know, a headline band in, mm-hmm. in Europe. They that took years to happen in America. Like in in America, they played on the college circuit and played in small clubs when they played in America at all, and they were you know they were a big band in in england and europe they were not a big band in america that's interesting yeah it's the maybe that detail gets
0: lost and i never really loved that band Hmm. um i like the recording that you did Hmm. um but yeah it i guess the the revisionist history is you you go do that and then it's a splash it's the biggest indie record of Maybe it is the biggest indie record of the year, but it doesn't have that type of.
1: Well, like I said, in in certain circles, it was a well received record, but in America, it wasn't. Like it wasn't right, wasn't right. a notable record in America.
0: You know, it is funny that you, for being, for doing things the way that you do the, the things that people talk about the most with that record is kind of the most producery things that you do having mm-hmm. Kim do, uh, the bathroom vocals and the
1: uh yeah that that ties in with what i was saying before like after i you know in the in the beginning of my tenure as a recording engineer after i had done a few sessions i sort of thought i had everything figured out and uh, everything was an experiment because i didn't really know what i was doing prior to that you yeah know? yeah so uh i think at that stage i was still in the aggressively experimenting stage but uh and also, I feel like, yeah, I, I I feel like I was stepping out of my role, which I, ha- I didn't really comprehend yet. Mm-hmm. Like, this perspective that I have about um, being more hands-off in the creative decisions on record, uh, I came to that after getting my fingers burned a few times, uh, and then realizing that it was a you know, it was an obligation of mine not to interfere as much as my ego might have wanted me to at certain points. Sure. Um, and that Pixie's record was a, was a pretty good lesson in that. Like, I did stuff on their record that I probably had to talk them into, like the bits of conversation. And the, mm-hmm. um, I had this conceit at the time that I didn't want to have any dead space on the record. I just wanted each song to flow either into... a a little vignette or an interlude or flow into the next song and that there would be like a continuous experience listening to the record. I don't know why I had that in my head, but that was, that was a notion that I had in my head. Yeah. And so a, a lot of those little things were those little bridges in between songs. Those were in service of that idea of mine. Right. And I saddled the band with that idea and I'm sure I talked them into it and I'm sure that they, you know, in, in a, they, they're agreeable people so i'm i'm sure that they you know went along with it because they wanted to be wanted to go along right wanted to get along wanted to go along and and i feel like that was an imposition and that then that put a very distinct mark on their record which they then had to answer for and i know that they had to answer for it because in every interview everyone they, sure yeah they would bring it up and then they would they would have to say yeah that was steve's idea you uh-huh. know? and i started to feel like the more i realized what i had done the more i realized how intrusive it was and how wrong it was for me to put my fingerprints on somebody else's records to that degree um and i i felt bad that i had interfered and you know the net effect of it could be you could pass a value judgment on that being good or bad that's fine but On a personal level, I just don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy that comes into the room and tells people what to do. Yeah, yeah. You know?
0: Um, I'd say the... You know, one of the paths that follow up that record is you're working with bands, like, for example, The Wedding Present Mm -hmm. or Helmet, who was on Interscope, and Mm -hmm. and then PJ Harvey was on Island. Mm -hmm. Was there... How did, did that feel like you were making a compromise? Was that anything that, working with major labels, was oh, it? Oh,
1: um, yeah, I, I, I didn't get what you were getting at. Uh-huh. But yeah. No, not at all. My, my perspective has always been that I'm working for the band. The band will have encumbrances with management and record label and stuff like that that are none of my business, you know. Um, so if I'm working for a band who happens to be on a big record label... My sympathies are still with the band, and I'm still going to take my direction from the band. Uh, The fact that the money might be cycled through a record company is immaterial.
0: Yeah. Nirvana is kind of a special case, though, right? Nirvana was
1: a special case in that they specifically wanted to operate separate from the record label. Like They didn't need the record label to pay their bills for them Uh because they were bajillionaires. Um, so they, they hired me directly, they paid me directly, and I didn't really interact with the record label at all.
0: So, when they, would it have been differently? Was the, uh, was them paying for the session? Was that their own idea? Was that yours? I'm tr- I'm going, I'm trying to only ask you things that haven't been asked you yeah. about a million times for we, this. We,
1: we discussed that as a method. We discussed that as a method in, um correspondence and on the and i talked it over with kurt on the phone i said you know like if you if you guys pay me directly then there's no chance the record label can hold anything up Mm -hmm. and you can get on with it and and then you can submit those bills to them and get reimbursed and that he immediately i don't i don't know if that was my idea or if he proposed that and i said yeah that's a good idea yeah that's the way it boil down
0: you did that at pachyderm you were you yeah. were taking the bigger bands up there
1: what would you like about that place the acoustics in the pachyderm main recording studio like the main room of that studio the acoustics were fantastic yeah Just, i love the sound of a drum kit in that room um there were a couple of smaller rooms adjunct to the studio that also had interesting acoustics um it was a recently renovated or like it was recently built studio, so everything uh, was in physically in good condition, you know. Mm-hmm. So everything was re- was reliably working, which was not the case at a lot of studios, and has continued to be a, a, a real thorn in my side over the years. Just uh-huh. showing up at a studio to make a record, and then the studio is incapable of making a record. That's a, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a drag. But that I I knew I didn't have to worry about that. Um, the the residential aspect of it was nice like the band stays there on site so you know, you don't have to try to chase anybody down there's no commute mm-hmm. um, you don't you know people don't have to look for separate lodgings and there's no local transportation costs. Um, there's a there was a, a, a bunch of um, musicians in Minneapolis who were um, accomplished cooks uh, and so you could get, you could hire one of your friends to come out and cook for the band and they would do like, they would, you know, it was, it was a drive, but they only had to come out once a day and they would do a big meal and then make sandwiches and breakfasts for the, for the next day. Uh, and so that was a little, you know, you could offer a little bit of side employment to some of your friends that way. That that. worked out pretty well. (laughs) So what did did it take? 12 days, including mixing? Something like that. Yeah. I want to say we, I want to say we were there for a total of fourteen days, but I think the first day was just loading and setting up, and then the last day was just shipping and packing, packing up and shipping and loading.
0: Yeah, Um and then it all kind of unravels a little bit with with
1: the mix. Yeah, the when they got the when they got home, bearing in mind that none of the record label people had heard any of their music in a while. Yeah, and Kurt had had um several instances of uh, where his addiction had been a, a real problem with the band. And so everyone involved in the band had reason, everyone on, on a business side of involvement with the band had reasons to be concerned about how the band was doing. So they turn up with this record, which I think is a, a, a really good record and also a, a really good document of the frame of mind of the band at the time. But it's, when the record label hear it, it's the first that they've heard any of this music. So they're confronted with music that's quite, sometimes quite ugly and pretty bracing. And their initial reaction to it is that it's awful and they can't release it and they have to do it again. Uh, and the band didn't want to. They liked the record. They thought it was good and it represented them. So there was a pressure, there was external pressure being applied to the band by the record company to try to get them to change their mind. And part of that involved um, scapegoating me to a degree. Yeah, And it, that sounds paranoid, ex- and I would not have thought that, except that I was being contacted by journalists who... One of them literally said to me, I just got off the phone with Gary Gersh, who was the president of Capitol at the time. And he says he can't release the Nirvana album, and it's your fault. <laughs> so, you know, when I'm, when there is, an, when there is a, an active effort on the part of the record label to scuttle a record that they, their premier act has just completed... You know that's an extreme act. That's not like some minor debate about, you know, the, you know, some licensing thing or whatever. Sure. That's yeah. not like oh they didn't clear a sample. Like mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. There's like that's a major breakdown. <clears throat> and in the end, the record that made its way into the stores. Is the record that Nirvana wanted everybody to hear? Uh, like they held their ground. They didn't redo the record. Yeah, they remixed a couple of things, but that was at their behest. And you know, I have no complaints. You know, uh, I have, I have no qualm with the band about the way the that label they themselves.
0: for the, as far as the label stuff goes. This has to feel just like. validating of everything that you've thought about record labels since you were 17 years old.
1: I knew going into it that everyone associated with that band was a piece of shit. Uh All of their management people, all the record company people, all the professionals associated with those people. I knew going into it that everyone in that tier of the business was a garbage person and that they were going to be awful. If given the opportunity to be awful, they were going to be awful. Right. Yeah. None of that was a surprise. Um, You know, and I'm, It's modestly satisfying that I'm still running a recording studio, making records every day. And Mm -hmm. those people are all selling insurance or something, you know, like, I don't know what's up with any of those people, but uh, it's modestly satisfying that when, that the collapse of the record business has affected them much more than me Mm -hmm. uh, in a kind of a schadenfreude sense. But uh, genuinely I have no animosity and I had no animosity toward the band. The band were under extraordinary pressure and they were in unique circumstances, and they had everyone around them telling them that, you know, this record is a disaster. We're terrified of it. And I I can't fault them at all for second-guessing themselves. Like, who wouldn't under those circumstances? Right, right. You
0: know? Um it did affect you at least like the fallout did affect you financially for a little bit of time right you managed to still open electrical audio yeah
1: the the year after i've completed that the year after that record came out and sold millions of copies and was a huge hit yada yada the year following that record was one of my worst years financially Mm -hmm. it was there was a there was a like, formal in the sense of Geffen Records. There was a formal blacklist on me, um, but there was a kind of an informal blacklist among that tier of professionals. Like, people didn't want their bands working with me because they didn't want to have to deal with any of the politics of it. Um, but I had another friend who was signed to Geffen, and he's and uh, he was talking about who he might work with for his record album, and his A&R guy... Said he was he could work with anybody he want you know anybody that would agree to do it he was happy he, he could work with except Steve Albini. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: how did you build it back up? Did you just kind
1: of well, lay I mean, low? Or bearing in mind that my core clientele wasn't superstar bands, my core clientele was like local and regional independent bands that didn't suffer after it, you know it did to a uh-huh. degree like the the weird fork that I was in was that. um as had happened with Butch Vig and other people who had worked on some records that had achieved big mainstream su- success, um, a lot of people just presumed that I would be out of their league, that I wouldn't be available. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of people who were on the independent and in the underground level presu- made, made the presumption that because I had done this big hit record that I would no longer be available to work with, and so they didn't even contact me, didn't even think about it. Then at at the other end of the spectrum, all of the mainstream like uh, major label artists were being actively discouraged from working with me because of the potential political problem with the record label, or whatever the perceived fallout from the Nirvana thing was. So there was a period there where... uh, my core clientele, which was the underground bands, had kind of dried up because they thought that I was out of their league, and then the occasional influx of decent money from you know from the bigger acts that dried up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I I survived whatever.
0: Yeah. Do you take any like the, the there was a Michael Caine quote about Jaws: The Revenge, where someone asks like have you seen the movie? And he's like, I haven't seen it, but I have seen the house that it bought.
1: Uh, Anybody yeah, that came in that you're slightly like, slightly yeah, mer- sure. Slightly more mercenary than I, than, than I I would think. But uh-huh, I, I, I mean, I'm just sort of flatly not discriminating about who I work with. Yeah. But if somebody yeah. contacts me and wants me to work on their record, if I think I can do a good job on it, I say, yes, I try very hard not to say no. I can only, I can Honestly, I can only think of a couple of instances where someone has approached me legitimately about wanting to work on a record and I've declined. Like it's just super, super rare.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a quote that I found kind of early in, in doing the research. and I feel like we've uh, talked a lot ar- around it, but it's from an interview you did with Robbie Fulks where you compare your approach to that old Smithsonian, the Folkway recordings mm-hmm. where you're just you're you're there to record whoever comes into the booth Mm -hmm. that day. um, I feel like, you know, it plays out uniquely in a lot of different ways. And and one of them that I really wanted to at least wait until I asked this sort of question because I Mm -hmm. didn't want to ask it more than once. But Jason Molina, Mm -hmm. when he comes in, Aaron Osmond's book shed a lot of light on the Magnolia electric company sessions. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you remember from, from that session in particular?
1: Well, I was, I was somewhat familiar with Jason's music. Um, my wife was a big fan and she had corresponded with him some and had some, um, private recordings of his and, and, um, I knew other people that had worked with him and, you know, uh, i I liked and admired Jason a lot um, and his the personal problems and his drinking, for example, um, the the problems that those that that caused I was pretty well insulated from like the sessions always went smoothly. There were no catastrophic breakdowns in a session that caused us to bail on a recording for example um and his just his natural talents uh were remarkable like he had a a beautiful voice and had a way of, of with words that allowed you to imagine that the words meant far more than they actually did. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, just his delivery, his choice of words, the imagery in his songs—all of it was unique to him. And uh, yeah, I had a ton of respect for him, and I really admired him and his music. And the people that he played with were generally the very best of their type as well—very gregarious, good-natured people. You know, efficient in takes, which is great as an engineer. But also, um, like their attitude in the studio was very cooperative and very collaborative, and I like the fact that Jason gave everybody room to be great in in his sessions. Like he didn't make people hew very closely to a line. For example, he would give them suggestions, give them ideas, and then just well, let,
0: he he hated rehearsing.
1: Yeah, he would just let just let things go, and how it came out is how it came out. You know,
0: I it's th- it's really funny to to look at. How much he did to sort of muck up that process, you know, bringing in a different slide guitar player and yeah. having people there to do harmonies that he just didn't write, and yeah. But you're still doing his I mean, first that, or second takes.
1: Yeah, and I out. mean, he is one of those. There, there is a class of artists that is more interested in. Surprising themselves and having the experience of discovery than they are in meticulously crafting something, right? Mm-hmm. I think there is value to both takes. But somebody like Bob Dylan, for example, or Will Oldham is an, another person of that nature, or Jason Molina, they're okay with it coming out bad. Mm hmm because that's just how it came out that time, (laughs) you know? And the whole point of it is not to do something that's objectively good, but the point is to do something that is meaningful on more than one level. And I think spontaneity and urging, encouraging people to be on, on the ball at all times, like those had value outside of music as well to, to, to the to Jason and to those people as well, yeah. those other people.
0: It's it's interesting reading Aaron talk about him in that in that book and really making note of several times how he was on his best behavior in front of you because he had respect for you and he didn't want to uh, do well, anything
1: to muck things up. Well, that's part of it but i think also the sessions at electrical were a significant expense you know sure. i think he's just a you know in every aspect he seemed like he was a reasonably practical person except when he was ruining his life you know he seemed right. like he was practical right. about things like well you know we're spending thousands of dollars here i don't want to waste it you know yeah. i think that's a, I think that's a factor as much as anything else like and also like when that money is coming from his record label, who are his friends, you know, and his friends and longtime supporters, he doesn't want to put them on the hook for wasting time and, you know, like blowing money by wasting their time. Like, I think I think it's I think it's simplistic to say that he didn't want to embarrass himself in front of me. Yeah, I think it's I think I was there in situations where he very much wanted to get things done.
0: I think that, well, I- you love to skirt a compliment or any sort of credit that's given you to an extent is that is that fair to say
1: i don't like indulging vanity yeah and whenever someone wants to compliment me if it's something that i legitimately did i i, I bask in it and then feel guilty later you know <laughs> if it's something that i can see from my perspective is more complicated or has more um, you know has more potential answers then i feel obliged to bring up those other potential answers uh because i think the sort of stealing or assuming responsibility for someone else's achievement is one of the rudest things that you can do and so i just don't want to do it um but there is there is a really
0: interesting uh moment in in this podcast in particular where Megan O'Neill from Super Unison finished mixing Stella with Mm -hmm. you and then came straight over and we did an interview Mm -hmm. and the uh, beaming light that's coming off of her during that interview is it's a really nice moment that I got to uh, take part in and we, we just talked about your wanting to divert a little bit in terms of uh you know indulgence and and patting patting yourself on the back but mm-hmm. you know having young people come in and make records with you you know people who have been wanting to do it for however many mm-hmm. years is that something that you that you get to take in a little bit and What's feel good about
1: the, the watching other people achieve something that is important to them and is, is really one of the most satisfying things. Like being in the room when somebody finally gets something down that they've been dreaming about doing their whole lives, It's there's just nothing like it. It's really, really incredible. You know, uh, you you feel like you are there at somebody's proudest moment, and you just feel it, it's really rewarding. That's, I, I say often when, whenever like me being paid to do this comes up, like you're paid in ways other than money. And one of the ways that you're paid is in getting to be there for other people's really important life experiences, like other people achieving something that is that means the world to them and that just gives them such a, a, a sense of accomplishment and a sense of satisfaction. And being there, being being able to bask in that is... Uh, priceless you know that's, that's yeah. the best part of my job that's, by far
0: that's amazing um, so y- you're going to hang out for, for a minute and answer a couple Patreon questions sure. for us is that correct I, uh, I,
1: I don't have to know anything about Patreon right I don't know anything about Patreon oh don't worry okay. I will
0: tell all okay. of my listeners about going to patreon.com slash Up podcast and give me a couple of bucks to get some air conditioning in this studio space but mm. great talking to you. thanks
1: for coming sure. over no problem
0: Alright, hey, that was an experience. You know, I spent so much time with Steve's body of work and really investigating it, and I came in with two goals. One of them was to get as whole a perspective as I could in an hour-long interview, which, despite not even mentioning Shellac by name we got into the goods but the other thing that i went into this interview saying is i don't think that this is going to be an extremely emotional interview but if there's even a tiny bit in there i'm gonna feel very good and what i wasn't prepared for was just how on the nose that emotional content would be the last few minutes of that conversation just flat knocked me over i listened to it again and again And talking to Steve, it wasn't something that I considered as a thing that could happen when I started this podcast. But once I did, once I said, oh, maybe, and then went for it, in a very Albini fashion, he was very quick to respond and to say yes. He was not easy to schedule, but the conversation that we had and the way it came together, it is a wonderful documentation, and I'm so proud of it. And so thankful. Thank you to Steve for coming by and for staying to talk on Patreon. You want to hear about Kurt recording vocals for in utero? You want some PJ Harvey content? That's over at patreon.com slash betteryetpodcast. Would encourage you all to go listen to shellac. Listen to that big black discography. Comb through those all music credits. There's something in there for everyone you can find Steve online at electricalaudio.com. If it's something you're thinking about doing, go for it. You want to find him on Twitter? Just scroll through my followers. We're following each other now. I'm at Better Yet Pod. We're not really following each other. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. We're on Stitcher and Bandcamp. Better Podcast.bandcamp.com. All of God's money, a compilation in tribute to Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is up there. The website is betteryetpod.com. And thank you so much. Thanks to Steve. Huge thanks to Taylor Hales and to my research assistants, Pat Nordyke, Lior Galil, and Carrie Crisp. Also to David Anthony. Thank you, Chloe and Lily. And thank you all. Alia, Albini did not record this, but I am on a fucking kick.
3: Come back next week.
0: Thanks, Bubba. How
3: many special people change How many lives live living strange Where were you while we were getting high Slowly walking down the hall Faster than a cannonball Where we you while we were getting high Someday you will find the dawn and ask her why a dream a dream she never dies wipe that tear away now from your eyes slowly walking down the hall faster than The doll and ask her why. A dream, a dream, she never dies.